Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Red Hat highlights just how leaky many open-source RSA implementations are, Netflix releases the Sleepy Puppy, and the Mac is definitely under attack. Then it's a quick feedback segment, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 231 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on September 3rd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Now, our live stream, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. You should go check that out. And my name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, Alan. Alan, um, yes. could you confirm something for me? I, I believe happy birthday is in order. Is this true? Yes. Happy birthday, sir. You are a champion, a soldier, if you will. Double tech snaps on your birthday. Yeah. That's pretty of, nice. of course, uh, when people watch this episode, it'll have been a week since my birthday. Right. Yes. We actually should have done all this last week but we didn't think of it. <laughs> well no but today is your actual birthday though so yes, yeah but <laughs> so, the episode that aired today is not my <laughs> right yes i know that is well if we are yeah. as for as part of your birthday celebration we've become time travelers is basically yes. what you're saying yeah so well, time travel from yeah birthday. happy birthday for me and happy birthday uh from the uh from the chat room as well yes. so uh alan i'm pretty excited because this first story we have it's from a company that we've been following from a technology backend now for a couple of years in the show, and they keep contributing more and more to open source. And it's probably not the first company that comes to mind when you say all these things, but it's Netflix. It's Netflix. And they've made a new tool available to the open source community that I bet is pretty handy. Can you tell me about it? Yes. Uh, so Netflix has released their new open source security tool called Sleepy Puppy. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, Sleepy Puppy is what's called the delayed cross-site scripting vulnerability scanner. So uh, in a typical cross-site scripting vulnerability, it's where you know, there's uh, some kind of input on a website, whether it's like a comment box or a URL variable or something, and you can stick some JavaScript code in there. And when you load the page, or more importantly, when someone else loads the page, their browser sees the JavaScript and runs it. Uh, and so what a website is supposed to do is apply um, escaping and so on to you know, take away all the special meaning from the text. So if I write some JavaScript and in a comment, it should show up as plain text, not actually be interpreted as JavaScript by your browser. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I can go and comment on a YouTube video with uh, some a JavaScript that loads some malware and takes over your computer. Mm -hmm. right? And so that would be bad. Uh, so there are many cross-site scripting uh, scanners that will go through a page and, you know, inject various bits of JavaScript and see if they show up in the output. Uh, but Sleepy Puppy is a, a higher level. It basically it looks for level two and level three attacks with uh, cross-site scripting as well. Uh, and that's what makes a big difference, right? Mm, okay. Uh, so, yeah, your regular scanner will go through and, like, fuzz test, try all kinds of different weird things and characters and all the inputs to make sure that all those handled correctly. And Sleepy Puppet can be used for that, too. But more importantly, it can deal with uh, other types of vulnerabilities. Uh, for example... You know, what if an attacker injects code on the website and the website escapes it properly, you know, uh, so that when it shows up on the website, it's just plain text. But you make a mobile app and it accesses that same data from the database and it doesn't remember to escape it. And mm -hmm. now your app's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, maybe you're not allowed to post comments from the mobile app, only from the website. So when you run the test against the mobile app, it doesn't show up as a problem because the mobile app never allows you to inject stuff or, you know, some other version of that. Uh, right, right. But also, what if it's the other use is some internal application, right? What if it's the admin dashboard for your application uh, where, you know, you approve comments uh, from mm. the moderation queue or something? Mm-hmm. Well, normally you don't ever make comments from the admin thing, so it doesn't have an input for that. Uh, but, you know, the worst case for a cross-site scripting is if the bad guy exploits somebody who has admin privileges on the website. Absolutely. Right, so Sleepy Puppy is a cross-site scripting payload management framework. Okay. So basically it generates unique code snippets for each individual injection so that when uh, the code actually shows up somewhere and is a problem, uh, it can be tracked back to where it was actually injected in the website so you can find where you need to write the fix. Right, so it allows you basically, uh, there's a diagram slightly down the page from where you are now, uh, where basically when you're the developer or mm-hmm. security engineer and mm-hmm. you're attacking you know, application number one on the server uh, and it gets stored in the database, uh, you don't realize that application number two that's using that same database is actually being exploited by what you're doing. Uh, so with Sleepy Puppy, because you're putting a unique marker in every bit of JavaScript you inject, okay. it will actually find... Not only will it be like, hey, app number two found this problem over here, but also it'll be like, it came in through this other app over here. So but, It basically um, allows you to find the interactions between your apps that you might not even realize are actually there. The part that I don't quite get, the part that's not connected for me is how does Sleepy Puppy, how does it, how does it, how does it inject trackers into JavaScript that say is like, uh, you know, it's WordPress or it's something that is pre-bundled up by another by another manufacturer. I don't basically it wouldn't do it it wouldn't say it was WordPress or whatever. It would say it was this input box on this page. So oh, we need to oh, tell okay. you like where oh, on the oh, WordPress. Oh, it was. okay. Okay. Oh that's very nice. Yes. Uh, so delayed cross-site scripting testing is a variant of stored cross-site scripting, uh, which can be used to extend the scope of coverage beyond the immediate application you're testing and actually find when it leaks into other applications. Right, because with delayed uh, cross-site scripting testing, the security engineer injects a payload in one application, but that payload might actually be reflected and come out through a different application. Right, and if you uh, scroll down further, you can say that uh, here we can see that a security engineer injected the payload into application one, mm. uh, but it didn't actually come out until oh, okay. it, uh, it was pulled out of the database in application number two. Okay. Uh, and so, you oh, know, especially okay. when that second application might be something used uh, by privileged types of users, like employees or administrators, mm-hmm. right? And so now with Sleepy Puppy, uh, it's all hooked up. And so Sleepy Puppy has an API as well. So you can actually have um, the thing that's testing the other app on the other side doesn't have to be Sleepy Puppy, uh, but it can report to Sleepy Puppy. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> if you're making a, a, a mobile app or something where you're not going to be able to run Python on, on Android, right? Yeah. Well, yeah uh, but you can so. actually post back to a callback URL and provide, you know, the URL, the referrer, the payload, uh, which person is doing the testing, even uh, uses um, uh, the JavaScript canvas things to take screenshots and everything. That's pretty advanced. That's yep. pretty cool that they're making this something this advanced open source because this could be a little secret sauce too. Yeah, so this is they're using to protect their app, but they're like, well, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. none of this is actually very specific to Netflix. It would be useful to everybody. Yeah. Uh, so they've uh, made it available on GitHub. They have um, integration with a couple of other apps and related tools, 
and they also provide uh, a bunch of default assessments as well. So you don't have to try to think up exactly you know, how you're going to test your app. There's a bunch of default ones you can start with and you know, examples to build on and so on. That's pretty neat, Alan. Yeah. Sleepy Puppy uh, makes the following use of the following Python 2.7 in Flask, including a number of helper packages, SQL Alchemy with configurable backend storage, Ace JavaScript editor for editing puppy scripts, HTML2 Canvas JavaScript for screenshot capture, like you just mentioned, and the optional AWS simple email service for email notifications and S3 for screenshot storage. This is like a complete package. It even has provisions for where to store the screenshots and how to send out notifications. Yep, that's uh, amazing. Because uh, on the uh, Linux side of of Netflix, they use Amazon. Right. So for all the uh, the data science stuff they do, like uh, the recommendation engine and all that, that's all run on Amazon on Linux. Uh, and then the actual delivery of the movies is all run on real hardware on FreeBSD. Yeah, yeah. Netflix, Netflix gets sleepy. I'm submitting that as a title suggestion right there. Boom. There you go. That's, that's pretty cool. And uh, Netflix is not sleeping on the job. If you heard, you heard. If you're listening to the audio version and you heard Alan mention the diagram, we link to those specifically in the show notes too. If you want to just go back and uh, find them, we have them available for you. If you got intrigued by how that might look, we do have it available in the show notes for you. Uh, just go over to Jupiter Broadcasting, look for episode 231 of the TechSnap. Yeah, and if you uh, check out their uh, announcement on techblog.netflix.com, uh, they have a couple of other diagrams and lots more detail on the tools. I know you mentioned it. I'm pretty sure you mentioned it like at the very beginning. Uh, but what's the license? Was it MIT? Uh, I'm not sure, but yeah. I'm sure it's it's definitely. Um, yeah, I don't actually see it on the post here. Uh, copy but, right or copy left even? Yeah, or no, yeah. copy free, copy free. That's the word I was thinking. Yeah, of. I bet we dug around like on their on their GitHub page or something. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, Netflix. Oh, on their own. Oh, and they're using Docker to distribute it. You can try it out with Docker. How about that? How about that? Uh, here's the license. I've just found it. Yep. It is the Apache license. So yeah, there Apache two point Yep, simple, easy to use license. Apache so even more free than GPL. Boom! Wow. Okay, and send your emails to Alan at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All right, Alan, any other thoughts? Well, on feedback. <laughs> he goes to feedback. Uh, TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting. Okay, fine. TechSnap. Uh, any other thoughts on that story, Alan? Nope. Okay, good, good. Well, uh, you know what? Then let me take a moment and tell you about our friends over at Ting because they have a special offer for the TechSnap audience: fifty dollars off your first device or $50 off of your credit or in credit for your service if you bring a Ting compatible device. And they have a lot of compatible devices because they have a CDMA and GSM network. So you can check over on their website at techsnap.ting.com. You got to go to techsnap.ting.com to get that promo, $50, or techsnap.ting.com just to support this show and check them out. I think Ting's a great option because they do mobile really differently. You only pay for what you use and there's no contract, there's no early termination fee. I love that. And that means like when I wanted to give Noah my Nexus 5 so that way he could get like a a little more experience with Android on a newer device. I didn't have to worry about canceling a contract on a year-old phone. It was a little, I think it was like a year and something. Um, I just was able to move it over to his account. No big deal. It's so nice because we've done the same thing with an iPhone, and I've I've, I've actually had an iPhone that I've had for testing that then I've given away and, and then bring got brought back. That's able to transfer. It's a very slick system. And one of the other things that's really nice is depending on where we're going for conferences, I've been able to take advantage of Ting CDMA or GSM network all with no contracts, no early termination fees, and only paying for what I'm using. It's a flat $6 just for the line. Just $6. If, of course, you're going to have some state taxes. That's going to depend on where you live. Uh, and then it's just your usage. And then they have no hold customer service if you get stuck, and they have a really awesome customer dashboard that really takes care of everything you'd ever actually need to use. People love Ting. You should go check it out. And I love Ting, too, because they really get into the nitty-gritty of the business, too, on their blog. 
And as a consumer who, I, I mean, I like to consider myself informed, uh, I like to see that level of transparency and information from my cellular company. I can't even believe I'm seeing that level of information from a cellular company. Ting is yeah. really doing mobile differently, and I love this one because I actually bought into YMAX early on because they really rolled it out big in Washington, and it was one of the first devices I ever brought over to Ting was my Evo 4G, which had YMAX. And uh, so they are saying, and I, they have a post up here notifying people that the last byte will be cast on November 6, 2015. Um, and so they talk about what YMAX was, why it didn't really take off, what, how people are affected. It's just a really, really solid post uh, from Ting. It's good information. It's something I think would be right up the TechSnap audience. Even if you're not a Ting customer, mm-hmm. you could support the show by going to techsnap.ting.com, looking around, reading their blog, and finding out more about them as a company. That helps us too. techsnap.ting.com. Go check out Ting. And while you're there, if you get a little curious, be sure you hit up that savings calculator. You just drop in your information in there. Just see how Ting stacks up. Might be worth your time. TechSnap.Ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. TechSnap.Ting.com. Go get that limited $50 promo. It's only good for a couple of more weeks. TechSnap.Ting.com. double what it normally is, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, dude, there's some, there are some devices on Ting that are uh, outrageously good values, depending on what you really need, like uh, $47 for the Kyocera Dura XT or the 48 or I'm sorry, $58 for the LG 450. Or you well, could what go. What about one of those uh, with the Wi-Fi, MiFi thing, right? Yeah, there, right? totally, totally. Or like the Zing, or like uh, the Motorola G is ninety bucks. You could take with your fifty dollar uh-huh. TechSnap discount. You could basically get a fifty dollar Moto G. That's pretty good. Yeah, with no contract nor the termination fee. That's why I say go to TechSnap.Ting.com so that way you get the uh, fifty dollar promo. And uh, thanks to Ting for doing that. That's super cool. And it's a good way too. Is like I know it's I'm not even going to say it, but as we transition to fall, people go back to school. Sometimes it's nice to. To give uh, some some nice value and connectivity without having to go into a contract and spend a whole bunch on a monthly yes. bill. All right, Alan. So uh, we have an article from Beta News about an extremely critical OS X keychain bug. And the keychain, like on yes. OS X, is like where a lot of the important user credentials are stored, supposedly yes. in a nice uber-protected vault that is unlocked by the user's master password and then does things like autofills in passwords, but also can s- store SSL credentials and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, like uh, they use it for everything, even to storing the list of authorized plugins for the browser. Yeah, yeah. Um, root root hosts, I think, are also in there. And uh, yeah, um, but most importantly, all your saved passwords and all your credentials for email and everything. Uh, so this particular vulnerability allows a piece of malware to access the keychain in iOS and copy all of your saved passwords and secret keys and so on, and then exfiltrate them from your phone. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's like <laughs> I. Can't imagine how it could get any worse than that. <laughs> that was um, bad. Yeah, uh, they actually get so far as they actually have a video here of, of it happening, and uh, yeah, it's kind exfil- of, it's remarkable. You know, how fast he, he runs it on his little tablet, video watch, wait, wait, and then his phone rings. Oh, yep, here's an SMS message with your password. <laughs> All right, so I'm playing the video right now. Yeah, and uh, so here he is setting up a new email account. And he uses the big secure password generator to come up with a big secure password. Right, and he saves that into the uh, keychain, key chain. Mm-hmm. and he opens this innocent-looking photo, and then you see that there's a little box popped up for a second and disappeared. Yeah, what was that? I wonder. I don't know. I'm gonna play it back. That no, actually look happened, at that picture. That happens so fast. Yeah. Here, let's see. So he opens up. Yeah, so it, click it, and there's it a little dialogue like a, over there. It the was corner. definitely an authorization dialogue. I recognize it. Yeah, it happened just for a second. But it disappeared instantly so quickly. Maybe you didn't see it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, regular users. I almost didn't even notice it. Yeah. And then oh, oh ding. Here's your password on this other unrelated device. 
Wow, yeah, there's, the there's the Outlook password. How about that, yep. Alan? Uh, so when the malware attempts to access the keychain, iOS presents a dialogue asking the user to allow or deny the action. And if you allow it, it also remembers it, which is partly problematic, possibly. Uh, but the malware can simulate a tap or a click and just accept the dialogue without the user having to do anything, kind of defeating the purpose of this dialogue. Right? The dialogue is to stop an application from doing stuff without your permission. <laughs> but if the, dial- if the application can accept the per- uh, give itself permission, that kind of defeats the purpose. Um, further, some webinar has been seen to be able to cause the pop-up to appear off-screen or behind things. You know, specially crafted commands can be triggered by the malware, uh, even from an image or a video, that cause OSX to display a prompt to click an allow button. But rather than relying on the user clicking on the button that appears to be uh, appears unexpectedly, the button is displayed very briefly off the edge of the screen or behind the dock and is automatically pressed using a further command. Mm. It is then possible to intercept a user's uh, password and send it to an attacker via SMS or some other means. And they're using something in the background to do the SMS. That's just part. That's they're just being yeah. fancy there. Yeah. Uh, but basically, he just gets this uh, mailed the, all the passwords out of your phone. Wow. Uh, Apple has been told about the vulnerability, but the company has uh, not only failed to fix it yet, but they haven't even responded to the researchers. But if I'm not mistaken, that's Apple's policy normally is just pretend nothing happened until we release a fix for it. But uh, you should at least acknowledge that you've got the message from the researchers or something. It's... You know, I should I should save my comments till we get through the entire show, but we have more stories coming up this week and next week, and it really, really, really feels like the OS X platform is under a significant new amount of t- attacks. Not in any that are actually, I don't believe, affecting users in a day-to-day way yet, but in ways that are, if they got significant traction, would probably make some level of dent in the Mac user base. And uh, we're seeing it just develop at an incredibly rapid pace. And I'm, I'm saying that knowing what we have coming up in content, and it's just... Right. Well, it's, it's very prescient considering what we're about to say, which is uh, Ars Technica found when looking at this bug that part of it has existed since 2011 mm-hmm. and has been actively exploited. Yeah. Uh, so there was uh, the biggest one that made headlines back in 2011 was Devil Robber which is a, a new threat that caught the attention of security researchers because it commandeered a Mac's graphics card and CPU yeah. to perform uh, Bitcoin mining. I remember that one. Uh, you know, that was fairly novel at the time. The less obvious part was that Devil Robber was using the AppleScript programming language to move the access control window off the screen and simulate clicking OK on it. Yeah. Now, but so that thing's been out there since 2011 in viruses that we've known about, and Apple didn't fix it. I think, I think, yeah. I mean, boy, we've talked about this too about how 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 unprepared Apple is for once their pl- their platform becomes a popular attack target. Mm-hmm. But um, like they've they've released some stats like uh, on that one about the Mac G- uh, GPU, and they said it was like 20 users total affected. Mm. So it's like I mean, I'm not. It's like they. I think they've gotten lucky so far. Yep, is what I'm saying because. Uh, this stuff, that that one we just witnessed, if that's spread around and it's getting closer and closer, it's getting more and more sophisticated and, and there's become more and more users running Macs, it seems like people are not, like it's almost become mundane to target Windows a bit. I know it still happens, obviously, but mm. like people aren't making a lot of headlines with it anymore. Well, I think the, well, uh, yes, you get less headlines, but also if you announce a, a flaw in Windows, there's usually a corresponding Windows update, not a lengthy period of nobody knowing what's going to happen until Apple's like, oh, there's like half a sentence about that in, in the release announcement we did. But, but yeah, I also feel like it's a bit of like, 
the security community is taking Apple down a peg and showing that they are they. I, I feels like well, I think there's more low hanging fruit there because it's th- had I, less yes, time on it. And I think the press is more is more interested in running those stories because it's sort of is it's because they all use Macs. Well, yes, and it's challenging the image of Apple that sort of yep. you know OS 10 is you know this great super uber moderate modern operating system. And yep. the reality is. It is an operating system built by humans sitting on top of a ton of open source software built by humans. It's going to have all kinds of different problems. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, the other one is the same technique uh, was being used by the Genio uh, adware installer because it used uh, the Mac keychain to access the Safari extension list and add itself to the list. Mm. Uh, also, what was interesting about this vulnerability was that on the same day that ours published their study, or their look at this, um, another group from, yeah. I forget which country now, uh, independently discovered the exact same vulnerability in the keychain. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're the, that's the Maikai guys, right? No, Maikai was the guys that found it first. Oh, okay. And okay. then a couple days later, some uh, other group from, uh, it's near the bottom of that article, I think. I'm looking, yeah. Uh, it goes to CSO Online. Uh, or, sorry, no, it's the Arsh article that has it. But anyway, uh, Security researchers from another company in another country uh, ended up finding the same vulnerability. Hmm. I'm still looking for them, but I don't yep. see it. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, coincidentally, researchers located in Beirut independently mm-hmm. reported the technique on Tuesday, the same day. Uh, as, but it doesn't. They didn't. The reason why you didn't get their name is because they didn't. They didn't say their name. <laughs> that's why you. That's why you missed the name. And then they linked it's to the same article that we just went through looking for the name where they don't say their name. So neither article says the name. That's why we yeah. could not. So we tried. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I feel at least because like normally we get that kind of thing. So <laughs> okay. Uh, and what is very interesting is I remember when uh, Windows UAC came out and people were quite annoyed with it, mm. especially the way it it took over the whole screen and dimmed everything in the background or uh, on like Windows 8 it actually like starts a whole fresh isolated desktop with only the error, the the dialogue right yeah and uh, you know it purposely locates stuff so you can't just press enter to accept it or you know you have to it's uh, the tab target is random so you can't just press you know tab or arrow a certain number of times and press enter to always hit yes uh, well that was kind of done on purpose to prevent an application from being able to accept it right uh, that way, a you wouldn't just because you happen to be pressing enter as the dialog popped up, you wouldn't accept it without mm-hmm. even realizing mm-hmm. it. But also, it starts in a completely isolated uh, win- uh, Windows desktop environment, so that no other program can control the mouse in that mode. Yeah, and I think specifically Mac OS X, if you have a certain type of accessibility feature set turned on under Mac OS X, which is super common uh, for any desktop that has uh, like Text Expander or a bunch of other really popular like um, screencasting applications for the Mac, that they actually take advantage of the accessibility options to manipulate the dialogues on screen to be able to push their buttons and capture them independently and isolate them independently. And malware, malware authors can also take advantage of this accessibility feature if you have it on. And the thing is, a lot of power utilities on the Mac turn that feature on. So mm-hmm. where under Windows, it actually manages to properly isolate those when the UAC dialog comes up. The Mac is actually gone the complete opposite direction. And accessibility, people say, it makes it more accessible. But, the, but, you, are a, but you are essentially able to control the entire UI uh, through right. remote and calls. Uh, the, uh, controlling the UI is great, but the security UI needs to be separate and which not it is able not to do that, in right? macOS. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe we need something more like UAC on mobile apps. Uh, or maybe even t- 
to the point of uh, going further, right? So uh, the quote here says, Mac users should remember that the technique only uh, works only when invoked by an application already installed on their system. There's no evidence uh, the technique can be carried out through drive-by exploits or attacks that don't require some level of social engineering or end-user interaction. Mm. Still, the weakness is unsettling because it allows the same app requesting access to the keychain to unilaterally approve it uh, and do so quickly enough that users may have no idea that it happened. And by default, OS X uh, will grant the access without requiring the user to re-enter their password. A Mac keychain is a protected place storing account passwords and cryptographic keys. So maybe, you know, they kind of touched on it in that quote there. Maybe the solution is actually to require the, the password or the unlock code for your iPhone or whatever in order to authorize an app to actually touch something sensitive like the keychain. So I don't, I'm not suggesting you have to re-enter the password every time you want to authorize an app. Mm. Uh, but maybe that should be an option if you want to secure your phone. Mm. But whenever it's actually touching the keychain, like in in LastPass, you can't ever do anything involving your vault without having to re-enter the master you password. Know, right? I'm I'm thinking the way on iOS it works is after 15 minutes after the after you've authorized it after 15 minutes you have to unlock the keychain again in order to like purchase right. an app or do something that requires your password. That, but they that's don't do that typical on, to have a 15 minute timeout on, on the key like I have the yeah. same thing for my SSH key on my computer. Now but uh on the Mac, it is every single time the app needs dialogue. There's no timeout. It's every single time the app needs authorization, but anything can interact with that dialogue. Mm -hmm. So they don't really have a middle ground on the Mac there. Well, right. Well, you basically, you could stop a program from being able to automatically accept the dialogue if it had to enter a password or a PIN number or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the reason why that doesn't happen is when you log into the Mac OS X desktop, it unlocks the keychain. The, the action right. of, un of logging in is what unlocks the keychain. Right. So they, maybe but they could just expire it, the it, authorization it, to the keychain in the session and then require a password. Or even just it. every time a, a new program wants access to be added to the list, just enter the password. Uh, otherwise, we end up with captures on the authorization dialogues. Oh, man. <laughs> don't even. Don't give them ideas. Not it, it would be the most incredible captures ever. They'd be innovative and designed by Johnny Ive. <laughs> yes. I can see that with Apple. Is that you, if you're not an artist, you won't understand these captures. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll your thoughts on the that one. hipster-only captures. How's that yeah. work? Uh, <clears throat> but a particular um, a researcher from Malwarebytes said that I think mm. Apple needs to isolate that particular window, uh, and they need to pull that particular window out of the window list in a way that apps can't tell it's on the screen and get its location. Right? Basically, extend the uh, UI API to have a class for security dialogues and don't allow them to be seen by the regular API mm -hmm. so that malware and you know automation programs and all that stuff can do whatever they want with all the regular dialogues but security dialogues are are protected yeah yeah and maybe even look a little like you know specific yes, look different yeah. And yeah i mean they do put like a lock icon on them but i think that's not enough yeah but dimming the rest of the screen and focusing on you know it, it's the only way to do it, to make it obvious that this is, hey, this is something different and special and you need to pay attention and make a decision here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I bet they, and you know, they're not going to have, they're not going to be able to have anything in place by the time their next uh, El Capitan release ships in a couple of weeks. Right. Yeah, so, way too late for that. Yeah. Uh, all right, Alan, why don't we take just a moment and thank our next sponsor. That's IX Systems. And boy, am I excited to tell you about IX Systems. Every time I get to, it really is a treat and you can find out more and maybe why 
I say that by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You can also find the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source over there. You can avoid a lot of common mistakes, help grease the wheels with management to switch over to a proper hardware vendor who actually understands the technology you're implementing, understands the advantages, and can build solutions specific to your need and then support them. And also make sure that they work before they even yep. leave the door. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Also, while you're over at the IX site, you might want to check out Defeating Crypto Locker with... ZFS. Look at this, yes. Alan. Now this is like this is the t this is the tops right here. Yep. This is like the ZFS war story of all time. Yep. Uh, well, it's funny because I basically have told people the same thing. They just didn't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this one's a profile of a Canadian company that uh, rents out virtual machines uh, to their clients, and they store all of the images for the virtual machines on ZFS, and. Uh, so it turns out one of their customers gets hit with CryptoLocker and it's encrypting all their files. So they snapshot. Uh, with it, in the background, they've always been snapshotting every half hour all of their virtual machines. But they take an extra snapshot of the CryptoLocker device, keep that over in the corner, and uh, then they can do a ZFS rollback to roll the virtual machine back to just before CryptoLocker hit them and bring the machine back up with all of the data not encrypted, right? Because ZFS <laughs> is copy on write. Yeah. All the encrypted versions of the files are stored separately, and you can just roll back and away from it. Uh, and anyway, they have a good little interview style here thing talking about it, and it's it makes a very compelling case of how they've made it from you know recovering from crypto locker being a you know weeks long tragedy to being you know two hours of. Uh, Manually picking through to get any files that may have been saved since CryptoLocker started. Man, talk about value as an enterprise to coming in, getting hit with something like CryptoLocker, and then being able to go back to your main data storage system and be like, this system, the way it's designed, has protected us from this. Yeah. Uh, well, because th when this came up for me was uh, in the spring of this year when I was consulting at the college. Uh, they were all running around like chickens with their heads cut off because uh, the shared directory shared across like all users in a department at the health sciences part of the college, which is off-site because it's co-located at a hospital, um, had got hit with CryptoLocker. Mm. And so they were having to restore from their tape backups over their point-to-point -point link across the city. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that, and they're like, yeah, it's going to take like two days to finish the restore and people are yelling at us. I'm like, you know, if you had ZFS, you would just use ZFS rollback and it would have been fixed. You know, Al, that's not like always the best time to tell seconds. people that. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's like you know, not when they want to hear 15 that. 15 minute snapshots, you could have rolled back in literally five seconds. Yeah, I don't know if that's what people want to hear at that point in time, Alan. No, <laughs> but it's like, well, you know, if you... If you would just do the right thing, mm -hmm. but no, you're a big enterprise and you won't listen. I, anyway, I like IX. It's a they, great story about uh, how yeah. a company was managed it, to uh, save all their clients a lot of trouble with crypto. It is. It's a it's a good story and it's it's a good example of uh, you know IX has been around a long time. They know what they're doing now and they've got a really really good team. That's that's their secret sauce and that's why it, it's it's IX is at that perfect scale. Where they have just the right partnerships in place, and they have such a great team and company culture, and you get a little you get a little taste of that every time you go out. In fact, IX Systems just had a great showing at uh, VMware World too. Yep. So if you're out at VMware World, maybe you had a chance to say hi to them. So go check it out. That article is also posted up on the IX Systems uh, website, and uh, it's a it's a great a great post by a friend of the show, Michael Dexter. So yeah, but uh, like how, how many uh, how many companies have been doing open source since 1996? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and doing it well too. Exactly, doing it really really well, and. Uh, 
uh, in it for the long haul. Okay, um, let's talk about uh, factoring RSS, RSA keys with TLS Perfect Forward Securis, Security, and Secret- I like it. Secrecy, right. I was reading ahead because what I, the, the thing that was actually jumping out at me in this post was, in big, bold letters, what is being disclosed today? <laughs> what is being well, disclosed, Alan? Uh, if you look, it's actually a whole Q&A style like that, so mm. it just happens to be the heading. Uh, but harking back to 1996, we were just mentioning. Yeah, right? <laughs> back in 1996, uh, Arjun Lenstra described an attack against the, an optimization in RSA called the Chinese Remainder Theorem or RSA-CRT. It's a fault. um, If a fault happens during the computation of a signature, uh, when you're doing the shortcut uh, RSA-CRT, an attacker might be able to recover the private key uh, from the signature, which is called an RSA-CRT key leak. Uh, At the time, use of cryptography on the internet was pretty uncommon. Mm. And even 10 years later, most TLS or HTTPS connections we're immune to this problem by design because they didn't use RSA for signatures, right? We use like SHA-256 or whatever, mm-hmm. or SHA-1. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> this changed excuse. gradually when... Alan, it's your uh, birthday. You can belch on the show. It's okay. Uh, this changed gradually when forward secrecy for TLS was recommended and introduced on many websites. Uh, so Red Hat has gone through and evaluated the source code of several free uh, software TLS implementations hmm. to see if they implemented hardening against this particular side channel attack in their uh, forward secrecy code. Good for Red Hat. Uh, this discovery uh, that is missing in a bunch of these implementations. In addition, they used a TLS crawler to perform TLS handshakes with servers on the internet and collected evidence uh, that this kind of hardening is still needed and missing in many server implementations. Mm-hmm. They saw several uh, RSA CRT key leaks and were uh, that should not have been observed at all, right? So they expected to find none and actually found a bunch. So that suggests that this problem is real and is out there in the real world. Yeah. It says an observer of a private key leak can use this information to cryptographically impersonate the server, right? Because if you manage to get the whole private key, you can now pretend to be that person. Uh, and so. If you get the key, then you can just do, you know, redirect the traffic, do a man in the middle, and pretend to be the other end, and SSL will accept it and be like, hey, this person has the private key, so they are really the real perfect, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, um, either the client making the TLS handshake can see the league, mm-hmm. or a passive observer who's capturing network traffic. Mm. So, if I'm sitting at the coffee shop watching everybody else's uh, wireless connection, and they connect somewhere, I could see the key to where they're going. Okay. Uh, the key leak also enables decryption of connections that don't use forward secrecy. So if you're using forward secrecy and talking to the server and I manage to get the key, yeah. I can decrypt the communication of anybody who's not using forward secrecy mm. because those are statically encrypted, right? Uh, without the need to do a man-in-middle attack, right? Because I can just decrypt all the sessions I can capture passively without having to actually interfere with the connection. Yeah. However, uh, because for uh, if forward secrecy is enabled in a browser, it's most likely going to be used, and so most people wouldn't, you know, that's not that likely of an attack vector because almost everybody has forward secrecy now. Uh, so if the server's set up to use it in such a way that you could get the key from this leak, the key would be less useful in a passive sense because everybody's going to be using forward secrecy, so you won't be able to decrypt the communication anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still a big problem. Uh, they also say uh, most clients will use forward secrecy, so an, at, an active attack would be required to actually make use of the leak key. But 
Uh, then they have a couple other important QA things here. Does this actually break RSA? And they, no, this uh, attack is what's called a side channel, which means that it doesn't actually attack RSA. It just finds problems with uh, specific implementations and uses that information to learn things it's not supposed to know. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, they did a study and looked at all the different uh, open source impl uh, implementations of RSA. Yeah. And uh, OpenSSL and NSS, which is the Mozilla one used in Firefox and okay, so on, yeah. are not vulnerable. They have the hardening and oh, good. they're good. Good. Uh, but pretty much everything else, not so much. Oh, not good. Not good. Uh, it also appears that Red Hat discovered this issue quite some time ago and reported it to a number of vendors. Uh, in particular, they cite that Oracle, uh, they talked to Oracle about the, this being a problem in OpenJDK and their uh, uh, RSA implementation. And Oracle fixed that in April of this year. So Red Hat's been sitting on this one for a while trying to get it fixed. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that uh, Oracle got it fixed in April means that Oracle probably had quite a, you know, they're not known for being quick about it. <laughs> That's uh, a good so point. They had a so how bad are some of the other vendors that Red Hat was trying to deal with here? Jeez. And from the wording in their thing, they gave up on some of those vendors and oh. just said, sorry, you've had like a year. <laughs> or it may be, yeah. Yeah, you, you've, you've had more than six months. We're sorry. We're going with it. I say, none of the key leaks we observed in the wild could be attributed to these open source projects. And uh, no key leaks uh, showed in our lab testing, which is why this additional hardening, while certainly desirable to have, isn't necessarily critical at this time. Okay. So even the open source ones that didn't uh, have the hardening didn't seem to be that huge of an issue. It's not like something we have to run out and stop using GNU TLS or something. Uh, but we'd rather see that the next version has this. Uh, but a bunch of these uh, proprietary implementations apparently are really terrible. Uh, they say, once the necessary data is collected, the actual computation is uh, marginally more complicated than a regular RSA signature verification, mm. which means that you're not going to be spending hours on or like thousands of machines on Amazon or something to brute force this. Uh, it's very cheap in terms of computational cost, uh, particularly in comparison to some other kind of attack. So uh, once you get this key leak information, uh, it's fairly trivial to do the math. Uh, it's not going to take hours or days or thousands of computers. Hmm. But then I love the very last question uh, that they have on their little QA thing here, <laughs> which is really telling about how things are right now. Does this vulnerability have a name? I love this one too. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> They're like, we think that RSA CRT hardening uh, for the countermeasure or RSA CRT key leaks uh, for the side channel attack is sufficiently short and descriptive that no branding is appropriate. <laughs> we expect that several CVE IDs will be assigned uh, for the underlying vulnerabilities leading to RSA CRT key leaks. Some vendors may also assign uh, CVE IDs to RSA CRT hardening, although no key leaks have been seen in practice so far. But basically they're saying that this one self-describes enough that it doesn't need a name. Uh, I, I actually feel like, like think, I think it's even going beyond that. I feel like, because they didn't have to put this in here at all. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. self-evident. This is them making, I think, a comment on this whole naming yeah. thing. And maybe naming made sense for Heartbleed because of, like weakness in the heartbeat, blah, 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 wouldn't have been as catchy. Uh, but sometimes I think they're trying too hard. Like, mm -hmm, what was mm -hmm. that? Back? Backronym mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. but that one was done on purpose, so maybe that was not a bad example. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. But looking uh, through the software list, they have uh, 
GNUPG, NSS, OpenSSL, mm. and OpenJDK after the fix are all have the hardening and are good. Okay. Although they make some comments about the way OpenSSL does it maybe isn't the best, but it's not practical to exploit right now, but it, maybe they'll improve that over time. Also, Cryptlib has hardening, but it's off by default because it makes it 10% slower. Okay. Okay. Uh, and they think it's not worth it. But if you want it, it's something you can turn on. However, they point out that GNU TLS doesn't have any hardening, although that's because they just used libgcrypt and nettle, uh, both of which don't have the hardening. So it wasn't necessarily a decision made at GNU TLS. Uh, but Go, the programming language, it's built in uh, RSA implementation, has a problem. Mm. Uh, libgcrypt and nettle we just mentioned. The OCaml uh, no crypto library doesn't have hardening. OpenSwan and even Polar SSL. Uh, are currently all lacking the hardware. Yeah. Huh. And then they also dig into some commercial implementations too. Yep. And uh, talk about how those are pretty much all terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Citrix is doing okay. So Citrix, Correct. yeah. Not so. Not well, so I'm guessing Citrix maybe, uh, I don't know if they have a note here, but they probably one of the vendors that Red Hat told about the problem and they solved it. Yeah, otherwise, not so good. Not so good. Or, well, sorry, this list here. I think uh, you're looking at table two. Uh, let me go back up. I scrolled down. Uh, yes, table two. This is the ones they found in the wild. Ah. Uh, so they found two under uh, Citrix. Uh, Hillstone Networks had 231 keys in China mm. that had low rate. And, yeah. But yeah, uh, Nortel is interesting because Nortel hasn't been around for quite a while. And then, yeah, the, uh, the other, uh, the Alteon key they found had been expired for a while. Uh, and then uh, Zizel and Fortinet, which makes a security appliance. And <laughs> but yeah. Yep. Most of those look like just really old things. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, they looked at what the browsers do in mm -hmm. the face of the signature failures. Uh, Chromium will just silently retry, assuming it was an error, which mm. is fine. And it'll eventually give up because, you know, if it wasn't happening by mistake, uh, then it'll just keep going until it gives up. And if it was by mistake, you won't even notice. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, Ice Weasel does the same thing. Uh, Internet Explorer has limited retries. Hmm. Uh, Firefox 31 and before uh, have uh, silent retry, but 32 and later have limited retries. Hmm. Oh, and Firefox 38 and later, based on this vulnerability, will uh, fail immediately with a message instead. Okay. Uh, and then W3M also does the failure. Right. So it sounds like Chromium actually is slightly behind with its... Uh, Apparently, it won't actually ever give up. It might just sit there retrying forever until you cancel. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so I'm guessing we'll see that switch to limited retry. Or what would be interesting, I think, is uh, one retry and then fail. So that if it was just a fluke, it would. But I don't know. Uh, maybe failing is better. But if you want to know more, they have a whole paper here where they dig it all in and have all the sites. And they even have some example code. They have a patch here for OpenSSL they actually included. That's pretty nice. This is yep. I like this. This is nice of them. Ah, uh, here's a patch to inject an RSA CRT related fault into OpenSSL for testing purposes. All right. So all this right. is how to make it happen on purpose so yeah. you can test this in your own lab. <laughs> uh, reproducers like this are very nice to have. That you is. don't often see that in these papers, uh, especially how easy it is. It's like 10 lines. It's classy. This is classy. Yep. Well done, White Hat. White Hat or Red Hat? Red Hat. Yeah. The company. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> all right, Mr. Judy, any other thoughts on that? 
Nope, that's about it for that one. And of course, Alan has the full report linked in the show notes because that's how he rolls. That's how he rolls. All right, well, let me tell you how I roll. That's DigitalOcean. I roll my machines over there all the time on demand at DigitalOcean.com. They're a simple cloud host provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to roll your own server up in the cloud right from... uh, from boot all the way up to finish, because they have an HTML5 console, and you can get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. And if you use our promo code, get ready for this. It's the promo code of absolute power and knowledge, SNAPOcean. That's one word, and that's lowercase. SNAPOcean over at DigitalOcean.com will give you a $10 credit. Then you can try out that rig for $5 a month, two do- to $5 a month for two months, because you get a $10 credit. That's really nice. And here's what you get for $5 a month. 512 megabytes of RAM. 20 gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSDs, all their machines, one CPU, and you get a terabyte of transfer for $5 total a month. And of course, you can try it out for free, and you can try something like FreeBSD, CoreOS, Debian, Ubuntu. They have a great, great selection of virtual machines and applications you can deploy with a single click, and they have a good selection of locations. They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And their interface to manage all of this is really, really, really nice. It's the best interface I've seen out on the web. And the other thing I really love about it is it doesn't necessarily make it watered down. They've managed to walk that line extremely well. And then, to take it up even another notch, they have an API available that you can use. You can integrate with your existing infrastructure. Or you can just use a lot of the good stuff the community has already written that takes advantage of the API. Remember, SnapOcean gives you a $10 credit while you're over there to try it out. So many nice things, and their pricing plans are super straightforward, and they have a bunch of really good tutorials. I like this one about setting up Apache virtual hosts on Ubuntu 14.04. Mm-hmm. That's pretty yeah, solid. Yeah, uh, Blaster could have used that the other day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know he's going to be... Yeah, yeah. I bet his face just turned awfully red if he's listening right now. Uh, go over to DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean, deploy a machine, try it out. I went over there and cut the cord from Google for my uh, contact syncs and calendar sync to own cloud... Um, the beginning of the year? I can't remember. It was, it's been quite a while now, and it works really, really smooth for that kind of stuff. I got a, I got, I got a Minecraft server up there, BitTorrent Sync. FTP services are up there. So many things that I don't even think about anymore, like my Quasal Core, uh, a machine that runs Ruby scripts for us. Like This is just like when we need something, we spin it up, and it's really great. Uh, when we go out on location, we'll often put like a, uh, an IceCast uh, server up there. So that way we can bounce from there back to the studio or something like that. Like just, We'll just do all kinds of things on demand. It, it's so nice to have that flexibility. And with their pricing structure, having hourly available as well, it might really work if you need to scale up on demand or do some d- deployment testing, something like that. If you have a client, build, their, build it out on DigitalOcean Droplet, and when you're done, you can transfer it to them. It's, it's great. And you can start in less than 55 seconds. Try it out for two months for free with our promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Alan, I wanted to mention something before we get moving. Uh, the BSD Now program came out earlier this morning. Yep. Episode 105, although by the time we're recording this, you probably have episode 106 out. Yep. And so, I don't Do you happen to know it was in 106? Can you? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't need to because it's okay. They can just yep, go check it out. It's just loading. Uh, 106 will be the 16th, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I think so. Yes. I uh, will have... Uh, Aaron Poffenberger talking about presenting about BSD at Linux conferences. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, interesting. Okay, very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. stick out the BSD Now program. Go get some more Alan Jr. face. Well, I, I like to mention it around this point in the show because we're about halfway through, and then by the time this show's done, I'm sure you'll have the HD version all wrapped yes, up. Yes, but the, the episode that came out, I guess, today will be too late by the time this actually airs. Or yeah. But it's uh, about VBSDCon, uh, the conference that's coming up. It starts uh, September 
12th, mm. which would be like the day after this actually airs. So you'd be really late <laughs> at this point. But uh, if you're uh, interested in meeting up or whatever, uh, it's a great conference and it's not expensive to get in. It's in uh, Reston, Virginia, which is Are near you Washington, D.C. Yes. Uh, Chris mm. and I will both be there uh, as well as like 100 other BSD people. There you go. If you're watching live. Find out more by going and checking out episode 105 of the BSD yep, Network program. Or uh, vbsdcon.com. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB site, or even better, sending feedback through our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email this week comes in from Anders, and he writes, uh, in, re- in response to a recent email we had about a cheap off-the-shelf PFSense hardware, he says, recently, my PFSense machine gave up, and I had to migrate my PFSense to something else. I initially tried with an Asus Chromebox, wow. With the cheapest Celeron, uh, one with two gigabytes of RAM, but it was very unstable. The USB NIC would crap out, and so I went with a single NIC VLAN um, way and still had stability issues, so I just gave up and decided to try a VM. The VirtualBox VM running on my server HTPC based on an Intel 1900 Bay Trail motherboard with 8 gigabytes of RAM. I find it working surprisingly well. I probably should add that I don't have many packages installed, currently only N-topping. NTOP or NTOP NG, which is actually a pretty big one. Um, but I have also a few by interface traffic shaping rules set up. My home is not very client intensive, only four Ethernet bound devices and three wireless. It was just a bit of a headache to wrap my head around VLANs and configure it at first, but what a great learning experience it was. I'm going to run this VM for the foreseeable future. I've attached a config of the VN, VLAN layout. Mm-hmm. And uh, here we have, Alan. What do you think? Uh, yeah, um, my PFSense ran in a VM for years. Uh, because at the time, the machine that ran it was my file server slash media center slash router. Right. (laughs) And because it had to hook up to the media, the TV and everything, it ran Windows. And so I ran like VMware server, the free one you could get at home or whatever. Yeah, the the old one they don't even make anymore, the VMware server thing. Yeah. Uh, and so it ran that and let me have the VM for of PFSense. Uh, and I ran that for quite a few years. And then eventually that machine migrated to be a uh, vanilla FreeBSD with ZFS and mixed size hard drives, which I don't recommend people do. Um, and then eventually got replaced with a real file server and so on. Uh, now my media center is a NUC. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, so a VM works well enough, you know, uh, especially for home, it, it'll be fine. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, fewer machines running can be pretty good. Uh, chat room asks about PFSense in a jail. That doesn't work quite like that, partly because PFSense assumes it's running on the machine, but also um, jails don't have actual network interfaces usually. Uh, even the other, um, even if you're using uh, vImage, you're, kind of virtual networks that are then bridged to the real ones, and it's, it's not great. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So, yes, a VM was fine, and that's a good way to do it. You know, if you already have another machine that's on all the time, why have two when you can just have PFSense be a VM on the other? Um, and then VLANs, yes. I can definitely say that when I first uh, got involved with that, that was very confusing. Uh, biggest thing to understand is that... Um, the 
what, un- what tagged and untagged actually mean. So that setting only affects how, what happens to the packets when they leave through that switch port. Uh, so you know, if we're looking at his little diagram there, and you can see that a lot of them are set to untagged, and that's what you would expect because you know, most of your machines probably don't understand VLANs. Uh, you know, I, I only have one Windows machine in my house uh, that actually understands VLANs. Uh, all the rest have to be untagged, and then hmm. all my BSD machines can have real VLANs. Mm-hmm. But uh, Intel only exposes the VLAN stuff on their more expensive NICs. Uh, even though the NIC can do it, they don't expose it to the driver and Windows unless you have a more expensive one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, if you're looking at his thing, you can see that uh, his home server has is tagged in a couple of the VLANs, uh, but the rest, most of the regular client machines are not. Uh, so basically, when a packet comes in, whether or not it has, when it has, uh, so there's a, a slot in the Ethernet header that indicates which VLAN the packet's in, and NICs ignore all packets that aren't in one of the VLANs they're set up for. So anyway, when it when it it's when the port is marked tagged in the switch, it means that when the packet exits, it keeps that VLAN tag, uh, you know, saying this packet's for VLAN number ten, right? Uh, and then the NIC that will receive it will only, well, it would normally ignore the packet unless it's set up for VLAN 10, and then it will go to that virtual interface instead of the main one. So for regular machines that don't know about your VLANs, you have to set it to untagged, and that means that the um, the packets, when they leave the switch, they'll have the VLAN tag taken off, and it'll just be a regular LAN packet mm-hmm. instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you take the same machine and put it in two different VLANs, both untagged, it'll basically get both those flows of traffic mixed together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that works okay. The problem comes in that you have a set it, uh, the settings for going the other way are somewhere else. So you can see he's at the bottom of his little diagram there. He has the PVID. That's the primary VLAN ID. You can only have one of those for each port. Mm-hmm. And that sets if a packet comes in and it doesn't have a tag then add this tag to it. And the default for every port is one. Right? Uh, but So, for example, you know, if you have a machine that's in two VLANs and you set its primary VLAN tag to 10, that means that every packet that comes in is going to be set to 10 unless it already has a VLAN tag. Well, if it's a machine that doesn't know about the VLANs, it's never going to set that. And so while it might receive packets from you know, VLAN 300 and VLAN 10, all the replies are going to go into VLAN 10 because the machine isn't tagging them, right? Mm-hmm. So you can cause yourself some really strange problems. Do you think with the... I mean, he's got what? Uh, one, two... He's only got a few machines. Yep. He might be overdoing it? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, it's fun, at least. My, my house has a little bit more than that, actually. Like, I can definitely understand um, he has one for his IPTV because that actually comes in mixed with his internet from his uh, ISP. Mm, yeah. Uh, and same for VoIP. Um, you know, I can definitely understand wanting your phone not to be able to be messed with by the internet or whatever. Uh, at my mm-hmm. house, we have a management VLAN, the office VLAN, uh, a DMZ VLAN, which is the one that goes out to draw access to the internet uh, with public IP addresses. Then we have the home VLAN. Then we have the guest wireless VLAN. <laughs> and then we have the office wireless VLAN. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So that's probably a little overkill on our end too, but uh, it definitely lets you have separate stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, and if you don't mind managing it, and it's a good exercise yeah. to stay sharp on, so 
Seems yeah, like it's a good way to learn, yeah. uh, and yeah. you're less likely, <clears throat> you know, when you're messing with stuff at home, you're not disrupting production. It's a good place to learn. All right, so uh, listener M from Portsmouth writes in and says, Hi, Chris and Alan. I'm fairly new to systems administration, and I'm currently managing personal servers for my own stuff. You know, website, a mail server, file server, own cloud, etc., with a mixture of Raspberry Pis and DigitalOcean droplets. That's pretty cool. He says, I'll soon be managing servers for others, though, and I was wondering if there was any central locations, maybe mailing lists or RS feeds, RSS feeds of some sort you can recommend for keeping up to date with the latest vulnerabilities and or urgent security patches for Linux. I get a lot of uh, that information from TechSnap already, but I wouldn't mind something a bit more real-time than a podcast. Love the show, and I've learned a huge deal since I started listening several years ago. I like Last as well and can't get enough of love. Keep up the good work, guys. Yeah, so in particular, you're going to have to watch for notices for a lot more things than just Linux, The your or because uh, that would be just the kernel. Uh, even if you're watching your specific distro, that might not have enough information. You you know you have to watch the mail server you use, the file server you use, own cloud. You can end up with a lot of mailing lists. Uh, on FreeBSD, we have a system for this called uh, VUXML. Uh, it's basically vulnerability notification thing, uh, and it's anything that's in the ports tree. When there's a vulnerability, it gets added to this big XML file, and that's what powers the package audit command, uh, which you can run, and it will tell you, uh, of all the packages you have installed, which ones uh, currently have known vulnerabilities, so you can be sure to upgrade them. That's nice. So you can set this up automatically with, like, Nagios, so that you'll just get an alert when a server has uh, vulnerable packages on it, and it will keep bothering you until you update it. That's nice. Uh, that works very well. Uh, so something centralized more like that... Uh, and the nice thing with package audit is it's automatically filtering to only notify you about packages you have installed, right? Whereas if you just subscribe to some RSS feed, sure, it's going to tell you about every vulnerability, but you're going to get tired of seeing ones that are things you don't have, right? I'm sure, uh, does like, uh, Yum or Apt have something similar? Yep. Yeah, most package managers have, they'll report what's, what needs updates. Um, and then yeah. there's also, there is in the kernel itself, there is a audit framework which you can use to collect some information. So yep. there's some areas there too. There's also an, a new automated one that we started using in FreeBSD called CPE or something. The, I forget. Uh, the difference here is going to be it's going to it's going to vary distro to distro. So Pacman yep. will probably give you a different set of information than say Apt will, right? So you, that's that. There's going to be a bit of variance there. Okay, that's a good tip though. And so you think uh, R- RSS feeds, news feeds of the individual projects, right? Uh, um, well, it's interesting. Somebody in the uh, uh, chat room just said he thinks that we need a, an equivalent of package audit for the base system of FreeBSD, and. Actually, no, we already have that. So if there's a vulnerability that affects FreeBSD, anything in the base system, then that gets announced on the FreeBSD security mailing list and uh, also gets posted on the front page of the website where there's an RSS feed uh, and will get updated via FreeBSD-update, which you can set up with a cron tab to run in the background every day and just automatically patch everything. Um, So, yeah... um, it's, there's already something like that for the base system. Package audit is just a framework to deal with the fact that um, the port system has 28,000 different packages in it, and you likely have maybe 30 of those that you care about installed or something. <laughs> right, uh, yes, probably. Uh, and more importantly, you know, wh- everybody who uses FreeBSD has the base system and is affected by all those security vulnerabilities. And so when that announcement goes out, everybody can subscribe to that and know that every one of these is something they need to care about. Whereas if they did the same thing for the packages, there would be like 100 emails a day and, and, uh, 
most of them wouldn't uh, impact most people that would get the email, and it would just be annoying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just reviewing the commands for uh, RPM and for DPKG to mm-hmm. uh, to get to, to generate those reports. Yeah, that's that's what more annoying that there's not an official like uh, <coughs> audit system there. That'd be nice. Yeah. All right, so that's all the emails we have this week because um, well, that's all the emails yeah, we got. You guys sent. kind of uh, failed us. Uh, where's, where's our emails? We, two we emails. Ask you for emails, and, and we get like we figure two things might have happened. Some of you are probably a couple of weeks behind. That's not too uncommon. And the other thing is, is probably a lot of you think, well, somebody else is going to send an email, and so I don't need to. No, we need your emails. Yep. That's why all we say that. All those. <clears throat> every single person needs to send us an email. Yeah, because we're recording ahead, uh, not next week, but the week after, right? Yeah. So we'll need, uh, we could definitely use more emails. So go over to uh, Jupiter Broadcasting, click on the contact link, and then just choose TechSnap from the dropdown. That's probably the easiest way. Or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Or you can also start a thread in the subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And with the feedback all done, it means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, like this first one. Surprise, surprise, China and Russia are cross-referencing OPM data and other hacks to out U.S. spies. This is according to a story that ran in the L.A. Times. Criminal organizations acting as fronts for China and Russia. We're not actually connecting it directly to China and Russia, but criminal organizations fronting are sifting through OPM, Ashley Madison, yada, 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 different kind of hacks, and uh, correlating identifications of people, mm-hmm. including perhaps some people in the witness protection program, I've read. Oh, I guess the OPM has data on everybody that gets paid by the government. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that could be pretty serious. And, you know, we, we talked about uh, the OPM data being able to be used to find people who could make good spies for China and Russia because, you know, once they have information about them that they can lord over them to basically blackmail them into spying. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, yes, all spies get paid that way too and they'd be like, oh, look, this person over here who we thought was, you know, doing something innocent or whatever is actually being paid by the government. That suggests that, you know, they're a spy and we should be feeding them false information or arresting them or whatever. (laughs) Oh, man, of course this is going on. Now, let's talk about the Zero Trust Initiative. What's this about? Yes. Uh, This is an initiative by a FreeBSD developer, uh, Powell Dodek, who actually is the guy that ported ZFS to FreeBSD. Uh, but his company uh, makes security appliances. Uh, we've talked about the, the Fudo before. Oh, yeah. Right? That's the SSH security appliance. Cool. Uh, well, he has this interesting idea for the Zero Trust Initiative, specifically for vendors like his and other security companies that make some s- appliance. Like this is basically, especially his appliance, right? It's a SSH man-in-the-middle appliance. Um, in, w- do you really feel, uh, you know, I personally trust him, but... Other people who don't know him is like, are you just going to install his appliance on your network and let it intercept all your SSH sessions and all your VNC, RDP, mm-hmm. Oracle, and micro, uh, MySQL sessions? It's a big point of trust. Right. So the idea of between the Zero Trust Initiative is a new type of not open source license that would allow companies to have access to the source code to the appliance and compile it themselves so they know that the code they just audited uh, is exactly the code mm-hmm. that's running on their appliance, right. but they can't obviously go selling the, the appliance or anything, but it allows them to verify um, that what they got from the vendor is, you know, that they could reproduce the same binary or whatever, 
Uh, but, you know, it's basically an open but not open source license. Or, you know, kind of like the, the Microsoft licenses where you can look at the code, but you can't, hmm. you know, Microsoft's done something similar, usually requiring something like an NDA. But, hmm. uh, so this is a, a broader initiative to try to adopt this in the whole security industry. Hmm. Just because it's the only way that we think it's possible to actually have security as it requires um, transparency, right? So some kind of source available license. Kind of like Tarsnap. Yeah, yeah. Okay, on next story. Uh, anyway, he's uh, he's presenting about it at the RSA Security Conference in Dubai, uh, in Abu Dhabi. Yes. Uh, next story in the roundup kind of is something that has been a repeat theme for the last few weeks. If you have a jailbroken phone, you are potentially at more risk. Uh, so this is a recent rash of malware uh, stri- striking two. No, no, I'm sorry, two hundred and fifty thousand Apple accounts, considered the largest theft of its account. Essentially, the malware only affects jailbroken devices. So. You only get owned if you have a jailbroken device. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the researchers at Palo Alto Networks are calling this iOS malware Key Raider. It works through the wildly popular Cydia App Store, or Cydia, or I can't, I can't remember how you say it anymore. It makes it easier <laughs> to download and manage apps on jailbroken iPhones. You guys are probably familiar with that. The malware starts intercepting iTunes traffic and hijacks all kinds of data, according to Palo Alto Networks. Key Raider steals Apple push notifications, server certifications, and private keys, steals, shares app store purchase information, and disables local and remote unlocking functionalities of iPhones and iPads because it's running as a root user. It can, act, it can access it. can do whatever all it wants. Yeah. Yep. So that's going on. And it's affected 250,000 um, yep. Apple accounts. And Mostly targeting China. In, yeah. I have a second link in, in the uh, roundup that goes to uh, Palo Alto Network's actual uh, research post as well, mm. which has mm. a bit more of the uh, technical details if you're into that. This next headline, I've been wondering about this myself. As police move to adopt body cams around the U.S. and other places, storage costs for that are going to go nuts. Like, how are they yeah. storing all this? Well, in particular, the companies that sell the cameras don't care about making money on the cameras, right? Uh, so apparently the, the uh, police department in Alabama just bought like 300 and some odd cameras, and then they paid about $500 a piece for the cameras. Uh, but in total, that meant they spent $180,000 on cameras, but then they signed a five-year contract yeah. worth just shy of a million dollars for storage for the video. Uh, so, yeah. Um, and in some of them, it's getting to the point where uh, the police department has to go through and pick and choose what uh, videos to keep uh, yeah. longer. Yeah, uh, it says the, uh, the Birmingham police, you know, they bought a five-terabyte uh, storage on, uh, on uh, evidence.com, which mm-hmm. is a... Uh, <laughs> File management cloud for police, I guess, built on top of AWS. And within a month, they've already used 1.5 terabyte of their allotment. So they're, they say they're on track to exceed 5 terabyte limit in about six months. Which is funny, because 5 terabytes of storage on Amazon shouldn't cost a uh, million dollars for five years. <laughs> they're really overcharging for that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, it's the whole service the, and management and all that and the support yeah. contract too, I'm sure. Yeah, but um, the interesting thing is that some of the laws, for example, in Alberta about maintain, uh, retaining evidence haven't caught up to this idea of these uh, cameras yet. And so it's up to the police department to decide how long they need to keep each video, which seems like a bad situation to be in because, you know, if a certain video contains something the police department rather didn't exist, they would decide, oh, our retention policy decides that this video should just go away. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, that one that incriminated our officers for uh, too much um, physical activity or abuse or whatever. Yeah, that's, or, you know, it could be anything like that. Yeah, uh, but mostly it's just, it seems like 
it should have the same laws as most other evidence, which requires keeping it for quite a while. Uh, and it seems they need a more scalable approach. Because the other question is, if they're going to be uploading five terabytes of stuff to the service in, like, what was the space of a couple months? Mm-hmm. That requires quite an internet connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To be pushing that much data up. That's true. And it mostly comes down, like, you know, if we have a standard DSL connection or something to the police department, how much of that bandwidth are we using every day just uploading the videos from that day? Uh, and, you know, at what point does it make more sense to have, you know, replicated pairs of ZFS boxes or something instead of this online service? Mm-hmm. Hmm. But, yeah, uh, I, I can see at some point some company is going to just start giving the cameras away and uh, if you sign the contract for the storage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially as uh, cell phones make those small cameras more and more economical because they're, they're building mm-hmm. them at such scale. So this one is noteworthy. Uh, pre-installed Android malware seems to be raising security risk in the supply chain. Security experts are increasingly worried about the security of supply chains, with reports of more than 20 incidents with rogue retailers having managed to pre-install malware on new Android phones. Um, yeah, so you know, if you go and buy your Android phone from a shadier vendor or whatever, street vendor or something, that it probably already has malware on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it appears it's uh, some popular supply phones, phones too. It just depends on... Just, yeah, uh, yeah, they target the, the phones people want to buy uh, and sell them slightly cheaper with some malware that's going to pay the person that sold you the phone uh, ongoing revenue from malvertising or something. So there's uh, we have a story in the roundup about multiple weaknesses that exist in AppLock, a popular lock application for Android devices that boasts more than 100 million users. What did you hear about this one, yep. Alan? Uh, Threat post, but mostly... Uh, so the, it's an app that claims to securely store your photos, videos, and other uh, information on your phone. Mm-hmm. Turns out it just hides the files in a non-default location. It isn't actually encrypting anything. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and then it, um, it's all protected by a pin code, and that pin code can be, uh, the reset system for it is very weak and can be spoofed and bluffed. And so somebody could reset the pin and get access to your photos, even though they're, they could probably do that just by browsing the file system. What the hell? Jeez yeah. Louise. Right. Don't trust random apps that claim to provide security. Yeah, or half don't, the time they're making it worse. Don't trust random ransomware either. An Android ransomware app uses XMPP to chat, call home, and claims it's from the NSA. Which I have a rule of thumb. If the software claims it's being made by the NSA, it's not made or by the, the NSA. FBI, yeah. uh, or anybody like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if it wants money, it's not from the government. The uh, simple uh, simple locker or simp locker, I guess maybe how you say it, lurks as designed legitimate flash or a video player, and then installs malware on the Android device. How about that? Checkpoint, uh, the folks that are finding this, they published the report last week. They have nice. evidence that users have already paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their files unencrypted by this new variant. They estimate that the number of infected devices so far is in the tens of thousands, but maybe much higher because the software can easily be removed once it's installed. Because easily, the software can't be easily removed once it's installed, and because the files encrypted can't be recovered without it, victims have no choice but to either pay $500 to get their files decrypted or wipe the device and start over from scratch. Huh. And it's coming in over XMPP, and it can communicate with websites over HTTPS to, in- to obtain new encryption keys. Yikes. How about that? That's nasty, isn't it? Pretty crazy. That is pretty crazy. All right. Now, what's this next story about, Alan? Uh, so this is a kind of a two-part story. It's uh, this lady here who wants, uh, is trying to convince the government uh, that they should have a bug bounty program, oh, yeah. and that maybe it should cover things not just that the government has, but you know, if it's anything critical infrastructure, uh, the government could help increase safety by having a bug bounty program. Yeah. Uh, and 
she's known already for the impossible in that she actually convinced Microsoft to start a bug bounty program. Right, right. So she's in a good position to con- uh, convince other people. That would be great. Uh, and then separately, she has a, an opinion piece here about the uh, Wassner agreement and how that could actually totally screw up the way we do vulnerability disclosure and research in general. Mm, okay. Well, that's really cool, Alan. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. And then our last story in the roundup, the Department of no, Justice. No? Oh, did I miss one? Second yep. to last? How many cl- yes. plus? Oh, okay. Second to last. Department of Justice being sued by Reuters, that one? Yep. Oh, that's uh, So it turns out back in 2007, uh, the that's FBI the um, faked a news story. <laughs> yes, we covered that, uh, didn't on we? On Reuters. And uh, so that the, the guy they were after... We, they they sent him the link over like social media or something yeah. or uh, instant Facebook. messenger. Facebook, right? Uh, I don't know if it was Facebook or not. Anyway, and when he clicked the link, the fake link to went to uh, or the link that went to a fake Reuters story, it installed malware on his computer that they used to spy on his computer and eventually prove that he did something wrong or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Reuters has been trying to get information about how this was done and so on under the Freedom of Information Act, and the Department of Justice has been stonewalling them. And in particular, they say it's very dangerous for the government to pretend to be reporters. Uh, because it means it's harder for reporters to do their jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at least for a while anyway, there was a rule at the CIA about not pretending to be a reporter so that real reporters could go out in the rest of the world and not just get arrested as spies automatically. Right? Yeah. Uh, if you're the CIA, your cover can't be that you're a reporter. Yeah. Well, the FBI and so on should have the same restriction. Just like a reporter is not going to act like as an FBI agent to get a good story because that's going to get Exactly. Paid. Yeah. Yeah, it was the Seattle Times, as I recall, because that happened in my neck of the woods, and they had messaged him over Facebook. And when he clicked the link in Facebook, he was presented with a site that looked exactly like the Seattle Times website. They re- they recreated the website, they made it, they just basically spoofed an article on there, and then they installed malware on that's his computer. Literally, actually a phishing attack. <laughs> yeah. That's what they do. Yep. So, yeah. Okay, now, I believe the last... Kind of story isn't really a story. It's more of a Google yeah, search. That's a, probably why I thought yeah, it's yeah. a Google search. Yeah. So if you go into and uh, uh, go into Google and search for in quotes not for public release and set the file type to .pdf, <laughs> you will find a giant list of PDFs that are not for public release oh, but are available on the internet. AER.gov.au is the first one that comes up. Uh, well, the third or fourth one that came up on my search. Docs.house.gov. Uh, this, 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 I see one here. It's a. Uh, OEMA.us. Do you see one there? It's the second on my screen, but your search results are obviously different. Uh, I don't see. Oh, yeah, yep, I see. Uh, yeah, here it is, a little bit further down. Yep. Phone yep, directory for Oklahoma FBI offices. Yeah, you click that <laughs> and it says, not for public release, for use by public safety agencies only. Yikes. And a list of the internal phone numbers for a bunch of FBI yeah, here's, offices. Yeah, here's Oklahoma FBI, uh, state of New Jersey. <laughs> oh, my gosh. USDA Forest yeah. Service. <laughs> All these things very clearly say not for public release on them. Execution and, procedures uh, for the Death Penalty Information Center. How about that one? Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, not for public release, confidential, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you can easily just find these with a Google search. <laughs> oh, man. Some of them maybe got moved publicly after us. Just uh, who knows? Yes, yeah, but... Or, you know, yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm posting this on purpose because they didn't want me to. Mm-hmm. But some of them, when it comes from a .us or .gov one, and it's like, this is very obviously 
they put this here for internal use and didn't realize that mm-hmm. it was on the internet and get spidered. Yep, and it did. And now we can laugh at them. All right, so that brings us to the end of this week's episode of TechSnap. We are going to be, um, we will not be live next week, but you will have a download next week yep. that you can find. And you can always follow our live schedule over jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. When we are live, I suggest you should join us because like today it was Alan's birthday and you got to say, see him play with a lightsaber on the live stream in between shows. Yeah, which is pretty rare because I don't like Star Wars. So <laughs> there you go. See, you only get to see that if you watch live, but uh, there you have it over jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. And don't forget, we also really want your emails. Please send your text yes, questions. Please, in. please. For my birthday, you Aww. owe me a present, which Aww. is an email. <laughs> wow. There you go. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>